Hi, I'm Dave Scott. I'm pastor of Crossway Community Church, and I want to welcome you. Crossway is a church simply committed to making disciples. We meet at 1501 Woodbury Road. It's off of Colonial and Fort Wayne in East Orlando. Come check us out. I look forward to meeting you. Go to the Lord in prayer before we go to his word and before we dismiss for Crossway Kids. Heavenly Father, uh, we do come to your word and we ask that you would speak to us, Lord. Even as you spoke to John the Baptist, Lord, even as you spoke to the disciples in this passage, Lord, even as you spoke to the Apostle John, whose life has changed and who shares in, in all this with us now, God, speak to us this morning, Lord, that we might come away changed even as they did. In your name we pray. Amen. Crossway Kids is dismissed. Sure, we got a signal here. Oops. Should we write? Well, as you guys see, I'm dressed a little different today. Um, all right, Lord, let the demons come out of the technology. That's where they like to go. Okay. Ah, there we go. Yeah, thank goodness. So um, one of my hobbies is that I love to fish. And since I've moved to Florida, um, I grew up pond fishing uh, in, uh, in, in North Carolina, brass, brim, you guys are familiar with that. So since I've moved here, I've uh, tried to learn, I mean, not, not a lot, but I'm learning saltwater fishing. And, uh, um, uh, and this is actually a shark rig. I love to fish down at Playa Linda, uh, surf fishing. And uh, to catch a big fish, it takes a big hook, right? Um, uh, to catch sharks. <laughs> This morning after my sermon with, with, Wood, uh, with Woodbury, one of the guys came up and said, sharks? Are there sharks out there? And I, I said, well, did you know that the shark bite capital of the world is uh, New Smyrna Beach? <laughs> yes, there are sharks out there. Um, but to catch a big fish, it takes a big hook. And uh, so I'm obviously dressed different. This is the way I dress when I fish. Um, why, Dave, why are you doing this? Well, the whole point of John chapter 1 is that God came pursuing us. And to, to, to catch us, God needed a big hook. What is the hook that John starts off with? What is the hook? Because the, the main message is that we, the purpose of the gospel of John is that we believe and live. How did God hook us with that message? He came to us with the incarnation. He came as man. And that's the central idea of here, of this chapter, the foundation of the beginning of his message for us to believe in who Christ was and from him to live and experience true life. One of my uh, best friends in um, uh, Cuba, and I wish that uh, uh, Ada and the, and the kids were here because these are dear friends of theirs. This is David and I's best friends, Joe and Vivian. And Joe and Vivian love to fish. Um, it's a passion of theirs. They also do it to put bread on, to put uh, meat on the table. Um, but uh, 
and they're amazing artists as well. One of the things they love to paint is they love to paint fish, and they do it very beautifully. Um, and, uh, and Joe also um, hand carves lures, uh, and this is one that he made for me. Uh, as you see, it's got the Cuban flag on it, right? Uh, that, that's definitely going to hook a big one. Uh, and, uh, but because it takes, it takes uh, you know, a, a hook and a bait to catch the fish. And uh, when we make, a, Joe makes a bait like you see here, he makes them to look like the fish, right? They look like the fish, so the fish identifies with it. And that's very similar to what the incarnation was. God, uh, in order to communicate a message to us, had to come in a form that we would recognize, right? That we would connect with. Um, and the ultimate goal, of course, is the fish, catching the fish, that the harvest would be brought in, that the fish would be brought in. Um, and it's interesting that the, the book of John is actually bookended by two stories about fish. One here uh, with fishermen in chapter 1, and at the end in chapter 21 about a harvest of huge fish coming in. And so uh, this isn't an insignificant theme for, for John, and I'm not just dressed up here like this just, just for my own jollies. Um, but uh, uh, one time, Joe and Vivian took me fishing. We went out, and uh, we didn't catch anything, and then Vivian reeled this in. Does anybody recognize what that is? That's a chicken foot. She caught a chicken foot. <laughs> we gave her a hard time about it that she couldn't catch a fish. All she could catch was a chicken foot. What in the world is that doing at the beach? Well, it turns out that this is actually a sacrifice uh, from Santeria where someone sacrificed a chicken and threw it in the water. And they were literally littered. The beach was littered with different pe things that people had, had sacrificed. Um, that the world is trying to bait us with something to say that this is how you find life. And yet it's empty, right? Chicken foot couldn't, can't give you life. The only thing that can give you life is Christ. So uh, I want to start here in, in this. We're going to look at the second half, the rest of John chapter 1. I want to start at the end of the chapter because uh, John does something pretty significant. He starts in the beginning. He's talking about all eternity, right? This word that was before everything ever even existed, that it created everything. So you have this kind of primordial vision uh, of God and the Godhead. And uh, Jesus coming back. But he ends up in verses 43 and 44 talking about a place, a very specific place, the Sea of Galilee, that Jesus came to a place, right? A place in northern Israel, which was pretty insignificant in Galilee at that time. This was not a major uh, uh, cosmopolitan area. It was not powerful. And specifically, he mentions a town on the Sea of Galilee. What does he mention? What's the town that Jesus mentions in chapter 1? Anybody? Bethsaida. Bethsaida. Bethsaida, the name of the town, literally means fish town. Fish town. And Jesus connects with some fishermen from fish town. Now, um, they've been trying to identify where Bethsaida is uh, through archaeology uh, for several different decades. And just in the last... Uh, ten years, uh, there's one that's the most promising that's now opened up. It's on the north, uh, the northeast coast of the of the Sea of Galilee, and it's called it's a it's a uh, archaeological dig called El Arage. There's a couple different criteria for identifying Bethsaida. First of all, it has to be a fishing settlement, right? You're going to have to find fishing 
uh, artifacts. And this is, in fact, a fishing weight from El Arage. It's a small weight that goes on a net. Now, I'm a historian, and, and I love artifacts of history because they actually tell you things. They're significant, um, just like, uh, you know, um, what Joe and Vivian are doing. Uh, the reason I'm drawing attention to that is because uh, this is significant. These were fishermen who lived there. This was what their daily life was all about. And Jesus connects with that in very specific ways. So in El Arage, um, the other thing about it is it has to be a first century Jewish uh, settlement, right? And, and sure enough, as they dug down through the remains and the different things, they, they identified, yes, this is a Jewish settlement. It needs to be a Roman settlement. It needs to be a polis because uh, other records tell us that Bethsaida was a polis. That's a, that's a Roman city. And we have Roman remains here as well. But the real clincher was uh, when they identified a church, the remains of a church that had been built over the Jewish first century remains was a fifth century church. Uh, and as they dug down uh, to it, they've actually found a mosaic tile floor. And on the floor was an inscription. And in the inscription, it specifically says that this was dedicated to the chief of the apostles, St. Peter. And they think that this, in fact, was a church that was built in the 5th century with the medieval uh, crusaders over the place that tradition held that St. Peter, in fact, had lived. Because our text mentions, who is it that's from Bethsaida? It's Peter, right, and, the, and, and these apostles that are from, from, from Bethsaida. Why do I start with this? Because Jesus came to a specific place. God came from all eternity to a little village called Bethsaida that's not even 15 acres. I mean, that's like saying that God came to Fort North Carolina, where I grew up. None of y'all know where Fort North Carolina is. Nobody in the world would know where Bethsaida was if John himself had not recorded this in the chapter 1 of his gospel. And yet God came as a man to people where they were living. He sought them out. He sought you out in your story, in your time, and in your place, and he did the same with me. So um, I want to pick up here in verse 6 uh, in, uh, from where we left off from last week. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and he was a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. Once again, we come back to this central idea of the gospel. Uh, John talks about it at the end of his gospel, and he's talking about it here in verse 6 at the beginning, that we might believe in through him, through Jesus. Uh, that we might believe and live. This is the central message. And so as we look at the rest of this chapter, uh, it, it kind of divides. It's the central hub of it all is the incarnation. That's what John is unpacking here. And the first five verses we talked about last week is the incarnational divinity, the divinity of Christ, right? That this is God who came. And then in uh, verses 9 to 14, he unpacks the humanity of the incarnation, that God came as a man. And then in, in, uh, in the, also in the last part of the chapter, he talks about incarnational discipleship, the multiplication of this message, the proclamation of the incarnation. Um, and so uh, he said that there was this witness, right, this, who is John, and what was he a witness of? He was witness of one central truth, of Jesus' divinity. And so uh, John, in the, in the chapter here, uh, John the Apostle notes several different witnesses to this truth. How do we know this truth is true? Well, John the Baptist himself is a witness that this is true. He's saying, I am a witness, John the Baptist says, 
that this is true, that there's one who's coming who's greater than I am. But John is not the main witness, even though he's the one who, that, that the apostle talks about his story, the story of who John the Baptist was, but that's not really the main point. John is actually pointing to Scripture. He's pointing to the witness of Scripture because the witness of Scripture is really uh, how we know what's true, right? That Christ himself was prophesied by Scripture and this fulfills Scripture. And then there's the Godhead, the witness of the Godhead, that at Christ's uh, baptism that we see God the Father and God the Holy Spirit and God the Son there in one place, the witness and self of God, the Trinity, witnessing to who Jesus was. And at the end, we see the disciples. We see Philip and Nathaniel, and we see Peter. And the ultimate disciple that we see witnessing to Christ is, in fact, John the Apostle, who's recording this to proclaim it to you and I. They are witnesses of this. But the last witness is who? It's us. John has now made us a witness to the incarnation, right? He's John's telling him what we what he knew, and now we know too. We've been proclaimed, just like John the Baptist was proclaimed in the first century, it's been now proclaimed to us that God has come in the form of a man. So uh, uh, in verse um, 8, it says, Now, he was not the light, but he came to bear witness to the light, the true light that gives light to everyone that was coming into the world. Notice that the emphasis here is not on John the Baptist. The emphasis is on the light. The emphasis is on Jesus, right? He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Once again, he goes back to what he said earlier, that Jesus, in fact, was a creator, right? Repeated here for emphasis. Yet the world did not know him. He came to, to know his own, and his own people did not receive him. John is now telling the story of God. This is the history of redemption. This is the, God, the main movements of the gospel. Number one, God created us as his own, right? That's creation. Number two, we rejected him. We did not receive him him. He came to his own and the world did not know him. That's the fall. Notice it says his own people, right? Uh, It says that uh, he came, uh, his own people did not receive him. That's promise. That's alluding back to the Old Testament, how God raised up a people to send the Messiah through, right? The promised Messiah was promised to come through a specific people to a specific time. This is promise. We have creation. We have fall. We have promise. And then it says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. But next comes redemption. Verse 12, but to all who receive him, he believed in his name, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of man, but of God. To all who receive him. Each of us has a choice. We can be changed from rejecting God to receiving God, from being uh, alienated and alone in this world to being adopted and reconnected into God's family. This is our re-adoption, that we have the right to become children of God. So allowing yourself to be discipled by the gospel requires to begin living from your new identity. And in Forge, we say, that uh, we are deeply beloved, redeemed sons in the Most High God. Women, you are deeply beloved daughters of the Most High God. All of us are deeply redeemed children of God. 
That's the identity. But we have to begin living out that identity. Last week we talked about discipleship, that it's the process of us uh, learning over our, our, over our life, the pilgrimage of turning from unbelief to belief in Jesus in every area of my life. I know you say I've already believed in Jesus. But it's this process of unpacking that through our growth, through our sanctification. So how did God disciple us? He, how did he do it? How did he model what that's to look like? It says he became flesh and he dwelt among us. C.S. Lewis says uh, that the uh, uh, let me find it. that the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this, or exhibits this, or results from this. Just as in every natural event is a manifestation of a particular place and moment in the nature's total character, so every particular Christian miracle manifests at a particular place and moment, the character and the significance of the Incarnation. The Incarnation was not just the first miracle. All other miracles, including the miracles of our life, right, result from, flow from, that miracle. And uh, Mike led us earlier uh, to look at the Nicene Creed. Why was the Nicene Creed significant? Well, there was a heresy that Jesus wasn't really God. It was called the, the Arian heresy. And so that's why the church got together to affirm this message that John, in fact, taught here in the first chapter that he was God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. He said, hey, you know, okay, if you don't get it, we'll just keep repeating it for emphasis, right? Through him, all things were made for us and for our salvation. This, do you see how this flows, even like the first chapter here of, of John? how it flows from, from creation, divinity, now redemption. He came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became truly human. The Nicene Creed defends this truth that we see unpacked here by John, this message right, of, 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 uh, that God came to as man. And it says, and Jesus told Philip in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Eugene Peterson talks about how God moved into our neighborhood. Just like God went to the specific place of Bethsaida and the specific on the Sea of Galilee, searched out these specific men, Philip and Nathaniel and Peter, right? He came to your neighborhood and to my neighborhood. And just as he was incarnate, he, Jesus incarnated the message of the character of the Father and the goodness of, of the good news of who uh, Christ had come for us. He's now also indwells in, in us so that we can incarnate that same message in the neighborhoods where we live, right, as well. Um, God moved into the Apostle John's neighborhood. And it changed his story. And now John is telling us that story, the story of how his life was changed. Verse 14, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, he says. Um, uh, John was forever changed by glory. And John says that this, was, this, this, this glory was a special kind of glory. This was unmistakable glory. This glory, John says, only one person has this kind of glory. Glory that can only mean one thing, God's glory. 
glory as of the only Son of the Father. And we have seen his glory, glory uh, that's full of grace and truth. And you know, God's glory is the nuclear power plant of the Christian life. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. How do we glorify God? We, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him, John Piper says. Um, the, God's glory is what fuels our intimacy of our worship uh, for God. And I know Amy has a real passion for this, and she's done a great job continuing to point us back to this. It's also the vision that fuels our mission for God. Why are we on mission here at Crossway? Why are we on mission? Because we want to make God's famous. The reason there is mission is to increase worship, and that's what we're doing, whether it's here or through our partnerships abroad or through uh, our lives where we live, work, play, and study, right? And it says, verse 15, John bore witness about him, cried out, this is the one to whom I said, he comes after me, ranks higher because he was before me. That's once again pointing to, to his, his pre-existence, his divinity. For from his fullness we have received grace upon lace, for the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace, glorious grace. Christ reveals a, 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 an ad, he explains more deeply what God's plan was from the beginning of time. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe, all who are longing to see his face. Who will this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, God's glorious grace. John was changed by that vision. And he proclaims it to us. He says, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. No one's ever seen God. This is a new, deeper revelation of God that comes from the Father in the incarnation. And it's interesting that, that, that John uses this phrase, the only God. The only God who is at the Father's side. Jesus has made the Father known to us. Um, he's come to us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. That's the truth of the incarnation. Now, what's the, what's the results for you and I? God is with us. He's present with us. He wants us to experience his presence, to live and stand on the reality that God is with us. Now, I spent time studying under uh, Dr. Larry Crabb, and he was, at the time, I, he knew he had cancer, and he knew that his time was short. And one of the things he shared is that wisdom, he said, that we stand not in the experience of God's presence, but in our faith in the truth of God's presence. It's not an experiential thing. We may or may not have an experience, uh, an awareness or a sense, a physical sense of God's presence, but the truth that he is with us, that he is Emmanuel, that he is God with us, that he now indwells us if we place our faith in him. We can now stand in that no matter what the circumstances are. Um, that's this amazing reality of the incarnation. You know, they've done s studies of babies, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, the, every, faith, every baby, they say, all of us are, are looking for a face. A baby is always looking for a face. And you all play peekaboo with a baby, right? Or you, you cooted a baby, and you see their response. Those of your grandparents, I know you've done this. You've acted like a baby in front of a baby, right? And you've seen the response. We all know that. Every human is looking for a face, looking for them. And what John is saying is for all eternity, God's face has now turned towards you. He's made himself present to you. 
He's attuned to you. All human beings are looking for attunement. Psychology proves this. We're looking for someone to be attuned to us, to listen to us, to hear us, to know our needs. But our parents can't do that. Our human parents, even the best of them, can't do that. Only God can be attuned to who we are and can meet our inmost needs. And so we need to unpack and we need to live in the reality of the incarnation. One of the books that's, that's been helpful for me, I went pulled it back out because years ago I went through it, is The Healing Presence by Leanne Payne. Now, Leanne Payne's a little more charismatic than I am, but she really does an amazing job of how do we unpack the incarnation in our sanctification. And what she talks about here is, you know, Andrew Murray talks about it, the indwelling Christ. Uh, but how do, we, how do we allow God's presence to now help me put the pieces of my broken life back together again? The pain that I live from, the brokenness, right? The ways that I've been hurt, the ways that this world has left me alone. How does God change that? Well, when by faith I have a relationship with him, we know that Christ comes in and he says he'll never leave us nor forsake us. He will not leave us as orphans, even though we felt like we were living as orphans before. And all of us have felt that in one degree or another in our lives. So what Leanne Payne talks about is what Jesus said is, you know, abiding with me. How do we abide with me? How do you, how do you allow the healing presence of the living God to come and to change you based upon the new identity that he's given you, based upon his love, based upon his mercy, based upon his glory. Something that's of more weight than anything else that you could ever live for, the things that you were living for in the past. And so I've been in the process of trying to do that myself as well. How do I go back and allow God's presence to speak more deeply into my heart, into the broken areas of Dave, right? And, uh, and, and that's, that's what this, that's how we apply, how do we apply? This isn't just a theological truth. I mean, it is a theological truth and it's, and it, without it, the rest of them don't matter. But even more than that, we need to apply this in our lives. We need to live this out. We need to incarnate the truth of the incarnation and we need to allow God to be present to us by being present to him. Uh, so, um, it goes on in verse 19 uh, and John writes, he says, uh, he summarizes, you know, verse 19 to 34, um, all of John the Baptist's, uh, you know, ministry and his witness. And um, uh, 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 I won't get into all that. I'm going to skip down to verse 35. Um, and it says, the next day, John was standing by his two disciples. And he looked at Jesus and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, right? He, this, he's, this is John testifying, giving witness to the, to the incarnation and also to the redemption and the, and the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And the two disciples heard him saying this, they, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following him. What are you seeking? They said, Rabbi, who means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus answers a question with a question. He always does that. What is it that they're seeking? It's not a what, it's a who. Right? They want to know where he's at, and they want to stay with him. He says, come and see. And this is the invitation of the incarnation. Come. Come be with the God who has come and see. See how that matters in your life. See what that means for you. Come and see. And for us, that's the same invitation that God's calling for us to reach out to other people. Tell them, come and see. Come check this out. God is in the neighborhood. Um, and so... Uh, uh, what this means is 
that uh, it's not just a metaphor. This is a radical truth. It means that God is now with us, it says. And it says, interestingly, it says, and they stayed with him that day. Where's for, about the 10th hour? So it's late, right? And Jesus says, well, why don't you just stay at my house? Jesus practices this missional habit of hospitality. You know, my dad, uh, my dad was a, 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 just a, a good old boy from, from Oklahoma. And if he come into your house, Nancy, if he came into your house, first thing he'd do is he'd go to your refrigerator and say, Nancy, what's for supper? <laughs> That's just what my dad was, right? He lived in a time in which, which at his parents, you know, if, if people were around supper time, it's too far to go back to town. They just stayed and had supper with you, Right? We've lost this practice of hospitality, but this is a missional practice. Jesus models it for us here. Um, he invites people to stay at his house. And uh, there's a whole book about uh, how discipleship means, you know, having and doing community together means giving each other refrigerator rights, right? That, that we invite people literally to hang out. That's what Jesus spent time. How did God spell love? T-I-M-E. And that's the same way he spells it with you as well. Verse 40 says that one of the two heard him speaking was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. What does he do? He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. What's his first reaction? To go and share. When you find something, you immediately go and share it. Y'all remember the bumper sticker? Some of y'all do. I found it. You can find it too right? I found it. You can find it too. I've got one of those in my, in my uh, boxes somewhere from my dad. Um, but it, how quick did Andrew do this? He says he first found his brother first. It's the first thing that his first priority was sharing Christ. This is one of the things that we need to train people when they come to Christ. Well, who are people? And you're, you help them map their what we call the oikos network. That means their relationships, their relational tree, their family, their neighbors, their workers. Who could you go and share this with? But we need to be doing that as well. We need to make this our first priority. It says, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. You know, a lot of us, I don't know what you were, had names you were called when you were growing up. A lot of us had different people at different times. and They've said things about us that maybe some of those are even ringing our head. But God gives us a new name. He gives us a new identity. Jesus calls Simon Peter. You are now changed. And he says it's not based upon who Peter is then, but on who he has a vision for who Peter can become. And discipleship always requires this. When you're involved in someone's life, you have a vision for what they can become, that they can, you can see down the road of what God could do in their lives. Discipleship always starts with that. Um, and it's interesting in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17, it says Jesus has a special name for each one of us. Did you know that Jesus has a special name for you, a pet name? And he's going to reveal it at the end of time. It says, To the one who are conquerors, I will give, it's a hidden man, I will give a white stone with a new name written on it so that no one knows except the one who receives it. Jesus comes to reveal the identity of God, but also to reveal to you his new identity as his daughter or son. It says, The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip, and he said, Follow him. Now, Philip was in Bethsaida, city of Andrew and Peter. That's what I shared, right? Jesus came to a specific town. He targeted a specific neighborhood. We have to target specific neighborhoods. If we're going to reach East Orlando for Christ, we need to target our neighbors, right? We need to reach out to those people that we know. 
That's what Jesus did. He started a domino process of incarnational discipleship. And so that's what the second part of this chapter is really significant, is the process of incarnational discipleship. This is the pattern of 2 Timothy 2.2. What does that verse say? It's very familiar to What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The things you have heard. What have we heard? The word. The logos from all eternity. The word that has now been spoken, that has been made flesh. From who? From me. From God. From Jesus. Jesus is the one who is now proclaiming this word. God himself, is through Jesus, is proclaiming his word. Who are the witnesses? The Godhead. Scripture. Jesus. We talked about this. John the Baptist. And there are even unbelieving witnesses. We don't talk about that, but there are unbelieving witnesses here in this chapter. The Pharisees, right? They don't follow. But they were witnesses as well, and they'll be held to account. And, of course, John himself, the ultimate witness, he says this at the end of the book, that his wit- he's the one who is a witness, and his witness is true, he says. And, of course, there's others also. There's us, John's readers. He's now made us witnesses. That word has now been come to us. The challenge to live out incarnational discipleship did not stop in Bethsaida. It didn't stop at Peter's house. It didn't stop just at Simon's house. It didn't at Andrew's house or Nathaniel's house. Right? They didn't just sit on it and enjoy the blessing of it. They passed it on. That's the pattern of incarnational discipleship. That what began before all eternity, who God was, his identity, living in community, living in perfect love, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, is now expressed in a person through the Son, made manifest so that we could know it. And that's been proclaimed. And lives were changed in a process of, of handing that down and proclaiming that where it all came all the way to us 2,000 years later. And that's the miracle of the incarnation. We need to live in it. We need to walk in it. We need to proclaim it to those who are around us. Because they're just a bunch the people around us are just fishermen. They're just fishing. They're trying to make a living. Just like Joe and Vivian, they're trying to eat. They're trying to put food on the table. Right? They're trying to deal with the brokenness of this world and get by. And they need the hope that Jesus brought to those men, those ordinary people that day. Joe and Vivian are also, I told you they're artists, but um, they're also tattoo artists. It's one of the ways that they, they get by. And, uh, but, you know, when they're giving somebody a tattoo and they only give, they don't give dark tattoos or anything like that, evil, they just give, 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 do good ones. But as they're tattooing somebody, they'll share the gospel with them. They've got a captive audience. It takes a long time to get a tattoo. I haven't done that yet or have, at all. Uh, and uh, I hear it's painful, but uh, they share the gospel with them, and they see people come to Christ. Why? Because God changed their lives, I and mean, if you looked at them, they would not look like people that, you know, you would think showing up, because they got, they got dreads, they got, they're tatted out, uh, but God's changed their heart. That's, what's, that was, that's what makes a difference, and now they, who've been changed by this radical truth of the incarnation, this this message of redemption that we can be adopted into God's family, they're now passing that message on to others who are living as orphans, people who are living in darkness. Right? The light has shone in the darkness. Light has come. And God gives us that challenge to live this out, to enflesh out, even as John proclaimed it, 
without reservation, faithfully to his generation. He gives us the same message to proclaim and live out that truth before those who are around us. And he tells, what's, what does he say at the very end, in the last verse? What does he say to him in the very last verse of chapter 4? He says, you'll see even greater things. Even greater things. Greater things are to come. The incarnation is just the beginning. It's just the fireworks that set off a massive explosion, the detonator of all that God wants to do in my life and in your life and in this world. What can we do as a little church with, I don't know, how many people gather here today, 25 or 30, I don't know. It doesn't matter because with the Holy Spirit and the truth of the incarnation, when we allow that radical, unconditional love to change our hearts, we are now radiated with his message and go out into the world. You know, as lives were changed even this week in Tampa, you know, through uh, the, the, uh, the Davies uh, kids and through the Davies and through the ministry there, you know, lives were changed for eternity, right? Lives are going to be changed for eternity this week at UCF as, as outreach is going on there. Lives going through being changed in, in, through eternity through our ministry in Indonesia and Cuba and other parts of the world and in Thailand through counseling. Through a, the message is going out from here. That's the point. What began in the first century now continues to reverberate through our lives and through the world. And uh, just as Jesus went to specific people in a specific place, he calls us to do the same, to incarnate that in front of other people. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your goodness. I thank you, Lord, that you revealed your greatness, your glory to us, and you touched and changed our hearts so that we could taste and see that you are good, Lord, and be adopted into your family as your daughters and as your sons, re-inherited into, Lord, uh, given uh, all of the blessings in the heavenlies, First uh, Ephesians 1 says, Lord, we give you truly the honor and the glory and the praise in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thanks for joining us today and listening to this message from Crossway Community Church. Once again, we meet at 1045 on Sunday mornings at 1501 Woodbury Road, which is just off Colonial and 408 in East Orlando. Come check us out. I'll see you then.